Welcome to the Weird Warriors Podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number four. March, April, 1972. The fourth scalp-tingling issue. Because, you know, it's scalp-tingling. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, pulse pounding, and you know, right there, they're going for that. They're going for that Stanley, you know, Marvel Comics bombast, and you know, that scalp tingling's pretty good. Uh, gut grabbing was my favorite last issue. That was that was worthy right there. I love. I can't that. wait to see what the uh, what the fourth issue of Weird War is going to be all excited over yeah exactly so on this cover um well once again we got 52 big pages don't take less for only 25 cents um we got the weird war awesome logo one of my favorite logos in all of comics it's it's just timeless i I love it the gravestone dc weird war tales icon and then we have as usual an awesome illustration by joe kubert i'll let you describe that to the listeners yeah it's a um an old man in a u.s army uniform standing uh well kneeling in front of a robed figure that is pouring the sand of an hourglass onto the ground in front of him and this is an old dude you know the wrinkles the no teeth missing the sunken eyes the gray hair and he's surrounded with the detritus of battle and he's all who who are you what have you done to me I've grown old. And if Joe Kubert does what Joe Kubert does, this is a, you know, old dude. <laughs> this guy's, you know, looks like he's probably in his 80s if he's a day, if, if not even longer, if not even older than that. So, you know, Kubert killing it as usual. I would hop into my, uh, my Killjoy was here moment right here on the cover because the, uh, the name tapes on the uniform are on the wrong side. The uh, U.S. Army should be, over your heart because you love the army (laughs) that is a real thing isn't it i would not doubt that is why u.s army well actually any branch is is over the heart i I wouldn't doubt that i wouldn't doubt that for a second that's Uh, okay so no one no one no one actually said that to you in your history of studying or being in the army uh i've probably heard it once or twice all right okay I couldn't remember specifics. But. Yeah, and they call comic books corny. <laughs> oh, man. So my, my favorite touch on this cover, uh, uh, again, like you said, we, we just, as they say, wax Joe Kubert's car every, every day. <laughs> every time we, we talk about the guy and he deserves it. But my favorite touch on this cover, since we got to get a little picky and zero in on, on some elements here, I like this robed figure that's standing before the apparently prematurely aged soldier and is just dumping out an hourglass of sand very casually like she doesn't even care where it's falling it looks like a woman's hand in the robe Um, yeah it it just doesn't even she doesn't even care where the sand is falling it's just piling up on his leg and you know i get the feeling we can't see her face but i get the feeling she's looking away towards the next thing she's gonna do the body language is like you are you're just you know collateral damage i don't care about you and the all that from just part of a figure and you know is 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 what i like about kubert's art here is just a testament to his ability to tell a story with a single illustration i love it that's what he does so uh before we actually lunge 
into the issue though. There was a couple of things that we did a little bit of research on from uh, the last issue. Oh yeah, we should have done this first. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. Just like we, we can do the cover detail first, then we can go, oh yeah, by the way, last issue. Yeah, so but, we're going to do a new segment uh, when appropriate in every show called Retroactive History, where we um, fix the screw-ups, probably mine, from our previous episode and uh, then get on with business. Or like this time, we're going to do it after we get on with business. So Rich, take it away. Okay, well, um, one thing... I've uh, I've mentioned before in some of the issues that we've already gone through the B-17 stories that I had uh, an uncle that uh, flew 32 missions in a flying fortress over Europe out uh, to Italy during World War II. And I've talked about him a little bit, but uh, the last issue, uh, issue number three, started with a, with a TBM Avenger uh, ditching at sea. And I, would, I felt I would be very remiss if I didn't mention uh, another uncle of mine. Uh, Joseph Jewell, Lieutenant JG, uh, who flew at, uh, Avengers with uh, VT-10 and then later on VTN-90 off of CV-6, the original USS Enterprise. Oh, and, now you have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> and he, of uh, course, he, you had it the whole time. But he, he flew two. He flew uh, two cruises. Uh, t- the Avenger was a torpedo bomber, but his, his uh, squadron commander hated the torpedoes that, that we carried back then. So. Almost every issue, every mission that they flew, they were loaded with bombs. And yeah, he, he sank one Japanese ship, uh, crippled another one for the surface units to pick off. He was on board the Enterprise when a kamikaze came zipping out of some low clouds and slammed into the flight deck and exploded. There's this picture, you can find it online really, really easily. Of there's the the Enterprise is at sea and there's this mountainous column of smoke boiling up out of the uh, out of the flight deck and the flight elevator is on top of the, the column of smoke. That flight elevator weighs hundreds of tons and it's about a thousand feet up in the air. Yeah, so that thing went whoop and then the, the 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 guy that was that that was at the con looked up saw that he just moved the ship's wheel. So when they came back down, the elevator hit the hit the ocean instead of hitting the hitting the ship. But uh, my uncle, you know, the uh, at this point in the war, the Enterprise was on night missions. VTN ninety, when that was that N stood for night, and so it was. This was during the day, so my uncle wasn't on 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 a mission at the time. So he was on board when the Kamikaze hit. He got bounced bounced around, uh, you know, the, the uh, his cabin pretty badly and, and uh, picked up some shrapnel. So he got he got a Purple Heart out of it, and that and that strike actually uh, ended the career of the uh, the Enterprise. That was like May of forty five. By the time they got it back home, got it patched up and everything else like that, the war was over. So oh I got God, yeah, minus a flight tower that they dodged so it could sink <laughs> into the ocean. My God. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I got a whole bunch of his stories out of him too. I just, you know, felt like I'd be remiss if I, if, if I, I mentioned my one uncle, I really felt like I needed to, you know, pass honors on, uh, on to the other one. So there's that. And, uh, the other one was we did a little bit of research because we were talking about, uh, the seaweed ban, you know, oh, from, yes. from weird war three. We were, we were making comments about who, who pre, which one predated the other one, seaweed man or Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing first appeared in July of 1971 in House of Mystery. So it does slightly predate, I think it was like, by like six months or something like that. I think it's about the same time period. Yeah, I get you. I mean, like the way that these things happen is like, you're never sure who wrote the stuff, who came up with it first, who, um, you know, who was talking to who, because Swamp Thing is also tied in with a little back and forth um, 
with Len Wein and a few other creators who were roommates at the time. And one of them went off and created Swamp Thing and the other went off and created Man Thing for Marvel. Both swamp creatures that were supposedly born from the death of a scientist in the swamp who, you know, they they're, were on fire and chemicals and they rose and, you know, became these muck monsters. And then you have this seaweed man too that, that yeah, it's a good six months before. So odds are Cuber just drew this, um, this seaweed monster. And then there's the heap, which was a swamp monster in the 40s, which I'm sure Cubert knew about. But it is cool to like, to just see the cross pollination of all these things. And I should mention, now you bring up the debut of, um, of Swamp Thing and House of Mystery, that the, uh, I believe the cover model who posed for the drawing of, um, there's a woman like combing her hair. I remember this cover pretty vividly. Yeah, yeah, and the Swamp Thing is coming up behind her. And that woman is Louise Jones, who would later become Louise Simonson, married to Walt Simonson. And so they all posed for each other a lot back in the day, like to, to you know, to get poses right and to get faces right and oh, stuff yeah. like that, you know. So, a light model. so yeah, that's just a, a little a little bit of comic book trivia because I don't have a cool war story like you did <laughs> with amazing heroics. I mean, I was once thrown up in the air off a jet ski that I didn't know how to turn and it did bob in the water, so I missed it on the way down. So it's very similar. Very similar story, but uh, that's about as, as close as I'm going to get to any tales of valor in real life here. So that's that's why we have you here, man. So the show will have some relevant content. <laughs> exciting stuff. Yeah. I'll have a bunch of, you know, stupid comic book trivia, which is terribly important to me. But uh, speaking of comic books, we've talked about the cover of this one. We're going to open that cover and get to the framing story, which I think you have titled Gypsy Girl, because that's probably the only title out there for it. Uh, as usual, the framing sequence for Weird War Tales to this point is all written and drawn by Joe, living legend. Well, not living anymore. Uh, Joe, the legend, Cubert. And the synopsis for this, uh, this part of the framing sequence is we've got two GIs, Tony and Johnny, are caught in an artillery barrage. Tony is wounded in the leg, and Johnny leaves to get help. A thick fog rolls in, and a band of gypsies arrives, led by a beautiful woman. The soldier is given tea and wishes it was 20 years from now. The woman admonishes him and starts to tell him tales of men that fought in different times and different wars. So synopsis, I would just, first thing I'm going to add, we don't have a Killjoy was here, but I'm going to add like a, um, you know, something that, you know, you're reading old comics, so things just kind of twinge you when you're reading them later on in, 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 in history. Uh, yeah, the whole gypsies thing. It just gave me a little pang, you know, reading that, knowing how opinions have changed, you know, and, and how portrayals have changed over time. There's nothing overtly terrible in this portrayal, I don't think, but I was still like, oh God, it's gypsies in an old comic book. What is about to happen? But thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, nothing too terrible as yet. So, so in lieu of Killjoy was here, I'll come up with a name for that segment uh, in a future episode, but uh, stuff like that's going to happen when you're reading old comics. Well, you got to remember, uh, you know, if, if Joe Kubert wrote and drew this section, you know, Kubert was Jewish. So he would probably have sympathies towards a lot of the, um, uh, the European, uh, I don't know what the hell the word is I'm looking for here. The Romani? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah. I, I would I, I wouldn't think see. so, but then you have the Will Eisner phenomenon of like Will um, was Jewish and was very, you know, very obviously against 
anti-Semitism, but then he had the character Ebony White in Spirit, which is one of the most horrible racist characters you'll ever see in print. And he talked about that in great detail later in his life. I mean, he didn't he didn't go to his his grave defending that by any means. But still, like blinders can be on even if you're a part of a group that's persecuted you can still go ahead and just you know be racist to everybody else it's we're all human but you know not to belabor it but when i saw it was oh a band of gypsies i was like oh god here we go but it was it ended up being fine so since it was fine and you know and it, it it obviously has great joe kubert art let's talk about our commendations for this first part of the framing sequence take it away Okay. Well, the first three panels on the uh, the top half of page one. I'm sorry. I can easily imagine Rod Serling doing the the voiceover for this. It's like in a world war, the lives of millions are involved: soldiers, faceless men with no past, present, or future. But the impact of war is distant and impersonal because of the numbers involved. Concentrate on only two men. People like yourself, they think as you do, feel as you do, dream as you do. <laughs> I'm reading this. I'm like, where's where, where's where's Rod? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's almost it's almost written in that cadence. I mean, you reading it in that cadence draws it out, but it it is it fits perfectly. And we're gonna have to find excuses for you to be Rod Serling in as many episodes as possible. <laughs> Because, you know, that's, I'm just enjoying the heck out of that. But obviously, Twilight Zone was a thing. It was huge before this comic came out. So I can see some of that leaking into Joe and just him writing in that, you know, in that rhythm without even realizing it or maybe on purpose. But it is, it does fit. I'm going to read so many of these captions in that voice as we go forward. You're welcome. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) For me, it's the last panel of this framing sequence. It it comes from, you know, when the soldier is, is wishing it was 20 years from now so he could get past this damn war. And the woman's admonishing him. And telling him, you know, yeah, kind of be careful what you wish for sort of thing. She says, for time is like an endless circle. And it leads right into this panel, the last panel in the framing sequence, where a biplane is flying right across her face. And that biplane, it's a tight close-up of her face, and there's a plane just just surreally flying across it. And that leads right into the first story. Like there's a level, as, as I've said in previous episodes, the level of coordination between the framing sequences and the content is getting better and better and tighter. And here it's like at an apex where literally a piece of the story they're about to tell is entering the panel of the framing sequence and flying across her face. So that leads us directly oh. into the first story. Oh, quite literally. I mean, this is the <laughs> first time that we've done this where like the top two thirds of the page is the framing sequence. In this case, Joe Kubert's art. And the bottom third, it just, it just boom, it jumps right into um, Irv Novik's art for the next story. And the two, pa- it's kind of weird because the two panels that they choose to drop right here are in the story, but like three pages into the story. It, it, it's kind of weird you know, the way they just chose to lift those two panels instead of, I don't know, two other panels. But the story that we blend into immediately is uh, was originally called The Ghost Ship of Two Wars. It never mentions the title in, uh, in the Weird Wars tale. It, in the original, it was a three-part battle tale. Uh, reprint, it was a reprint. Yeah, it feels cover. like it. Yeah, it was a, a reprinted um, cover story 
you know, that Russ Heath did the cover art on. Uh, it was from All American Men of War 81 from September of 1960. This is 16 pages. This is the, the longest story that uh, we've covered so far in one of these, uh, one of these uh, podcasts. Uh, Bob Conger wrote it, and as I've already mentioned, uh, Irv Novick did the art. And uh, the synopsis is there's these three brothers, the three musketeers, Bill and Steve, they always look after Mickey in childhood fights, sports, and getting a date. Uh, they're assigned to the same fighter squadron in France in World War One. They get jumped by, by an enemy squadron led by the Black Ace, who flies with a fixed death head's grin in a black and white albatross. Mickey's getting shot up until Bill flies between the two planes and gets himself shot down and killed. The same thing soon happens to Steve also, and Steve vows, I'll get you to the enemy pilot through tear-filled eyes. Time goes by, and Mickey runs up his score searching for the Black Ace, who, of course, finds him first. Thrown out of the cockpit in the fierce maneuvering to escape the German's guns, his spad levels off as it flies into a cloud. Mickey parachutes into it as well, screaming at the Black Ace, I'll come after you no matter where I am. Falling out of the cloud, a flight of World War II P-51s roar by, and Mickey is all like, what? What are those? Am I dreaming? He's knocked out on landing, and when he, he wakes up in a military hospital surrounded by medical personnel, wondering why he's wearing a World War I uniform. Mickey sees a calendar on a table with 1944 on it and says, I can't tell them the truth. They'll think I'm nuts. They'll lock me up. He figures the cloud had something to do with it and he laments the fact that the Black Ace is now out of his reach forever. Uh, the airfield suddenly comes under enemy air attack led by a Messerschmitt with the same paint scheme as the Black Ace. Mickey grabs a chute from a killed pilot and scrambles to get into the fight, but all the Mustangs are wrecked. He's chased into the woods by the medical personnel and he finds, ta-da! His spad waiting for him, magically landed all by itself. He climbs in and takes off over the heads of the medics who are all, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> this guy takes his, recre or his recreation hobby seriously. Uh, Mickey gets max altitude and dives on the Messerschmitt. It's pilot sporting the same death head grin as his World War I counterpart. Messerschmitt opens fire out of the range of the spad's guns and shoots off the Spad's wings. Mickey opens up at close range, avenging his brothers, and the two planes collide head-on. Mickey is thrown clear, shoots through the clouds, and returns to World War I to see the wreckage of two planes below. One is his Spad, and the other is the World War I Black Aces. Congratulated by his squadron, he mulls the truth silently. He's like, probably like, what, is there going to be like another war in 27 years? <laughs> so, like I said, that was, that was, was a three-part story. It was the longest one we've done so far. It's a pretty good story. They hopped into it kind of fast. They, they, they skipped two whole pages uh, in the original that they just didn't do for the, in the reprint for some odd reason. Yeah, are we missing anything there? Like, because uh, I did uh, feel it was kind of abrupt, but. Nah. Not really. I mean, it's it's the dramatic, you know, the the World War II Black Ace is looking through his windscreen at the spad, zooming in on him. He's like, Kibble, is this a ghost ship? Or really an Americaner fool attacking my Messerschmitt with a World War I spad? And the whole first page that they, that they eliminate is, you know, Mickey in his chute, you know, heading down to the clouds and the World War I Black Ace is zooming on him and, try, and sh uh, shooting at him with his guns, trying to kill him. And, you know, he disappears into the, into the, uh, into the clouds before he can actually get him. And then it jumps into the whole Mickey and his brothers, the three musketeers and, and, and everything else. But uh, just my, uh, the one little kill, uh, killjoy was here moment. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. I said about parachutes last episode. I do. Yeah. No, 
they didn't have parachutes, <laughs> which would really eliminate, you know, a good chunk of the story, not having parachutes. But see, yeah, they, yeah. because of all the time travel, they had to d- disallow parachutes because the space time continuum was tearing itself to pieces. <laughs> There was one key, one quote uh, I thought of when I was reading the story, uh, and I thought I would bring up here. Uh, Kiffin Rockwell uh, was in the uh, Lafayette Escadrille. That was a squadron of American fighter pilots that were flying for France in World War One before the United States was involved in the war. And uh, he was the first American to shoot down an enemy plane. And he is quoted as saying, "Elijah was reported was reputed to be the patron saint of aviators, but as he went to heaven in a chariot of fire." This was something we weren't too keen about, and as a almost you, you can almost predict it, uh, he was he was killed in action uh, in September of of 1916, which was still before the United States was uh, was involved in the war. So yeah, <laughs> be careful what you say about uh, about Elijah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I told you. I mean, like the life expectancy of these guys was not was appallingly brief. Yeah, and he didn't have a time traveling parachute. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yeah, commendations, yeah, like, you know, Novik does a good job, spads are spads, uh, the World War II parachute that Mickey grabs as he's scrambling to the flight line actually has U.S. Army Air Force, you know, detail imprinted on it. I, I can give Novik the nod for um, his attention to detail. Oh, yeah, Novik's art is unassailable in general, in my opinion, especially seeing his work in, in these issues pop up. But really good here, especially considering I could not wait for this story to be over. Like, for my first commendation has to be your synopsis, because you made this story sound so much snappier and better paced than it is. Like, it, I know it's a three-part battle tale, but man, it felt like it was 57 pages long. Like, Bob Conniger just did not know how to pace a story. Thank goodness he had Irv Novik there to provide what is one of the coolest panels I've seen in any of these issues is in this story, the one you described of the wingless biplane. It had its wings shot off by the World War II enemy. And it, it's, you know, the World War I soldier is just like, to heck with it. I'm flying this wingless plane straight at you and firing full bore. Like, that is just an incredibly kick-ass panel. And at near the end of a really badly paced story. So Novik just saved it in the end for me. I, 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 that, that is just one of the coolest things I've seen in a war comic. So from there, we move on to our second story. I'll, I'll let you do this one because I know you're, you're jonesing all over this one. It, it's originally, it was called, um, well, in, in Weird War, it's called Time Warp. It's the reprinted cover story, Russ Heath again from uh, Star Spangled War Stories 123 from October of 1965. It was originally titled The Dinosaur Who Ate Torpedoes, and it's our first foray into the war that time forgot. Bob Conniger and Gene Colan do the honors here, and I will let Max take it away. And I will- Yeah, I mean, first I want to say the first title, the original title is so much better. How do you get- <laughs> How do you give up the dinosaur who ate torpedoes and just call it time warp? I mean, we had a time warp in the previous story. That would have been more appropriate, you know? But the dinosaur who ate torpedoes is is still the title of this story as far as I'm concerned. And Bob Conniger writes this one, as you mentioned, and he doesn't do a much better job. At least it's snappier. But this story, it makes no damn sense 
even even considering you know it's a story with dinosaurs fighting modern day soldiers in it. Um, but we have the art of Gene Colan. We have a great original title, and as you were leading me into the synopsis, is we have a new super accurate bomb site being lost at sea, and frogmen in three PT boats are sent to recover it or destroy it before it falls into enemy hands. At the site of the wreck, the boats fire on an enemy sub, only to watch their torpedoes get intercepted and swallowed by a gigantic dinosaur. Two more dinos show up out of the blue, and eventually, the bombsite and the TNT meant to destroy it are swallowed by the torpedo muncher and boom, the dinosaur dies in the end. And, and, and it's a short little story where you have soldiers going off to recover something. A bunch of monsters show up literally out of nowhere. And then by the end, everything's destroyed. The dinosaurs are dead. And pretty much the reset button has been hit. And uh, two, of the, two of the PT boats have been eaten, wrecked, destroyed by the, by the dinosaurs. So there's only the one boat left. Oh, yeah. This thing eats torpedoes. They, they, you know, they eat ships. There's an there's a incredibly huge pterosaur or pterodactyl-like monster that, that eats an entire plane or at least bites it in half. You know. Does it bite the boat in half? Yeah, it, it, swiped, it's, it flies in, swoops up the... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Flies off with it, which, which, yeah. is, which leads to the incredibly dramatic panel, you know, as he's being carried off. One of the guys on the radio on that boat is like, guess you'll have to carry on the mission without us. Good. Look, which which is my commendation actually. That panel is like, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just so like it's like something from the worst old dinosaur movie you've ever seen. Because this thing, the 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 pterodactyl's head or the the whatever this thing is, because it looks nothing like any real dinosaur that even back then had ever been described. For one thing, it's it's like what five hundred feet wide. A wingspan the thing is gigantic is boat, pretty much yeah it's insane like people on the boat are as big as its eye it's 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 ridiculous yeah i mean none of these things you know I, i'm going in with a killjoy was here on this one like as i said even for the time the creatures portrayed in this story are not even close to being real dinosaurs and for one what are any of them doing in the middle of the ocean you know like they show it uh, like a T-Rex looking one standing up out of the water. What is he standing on? How deep? They're out in the middle of the ocean. Did he find a coral reef that he happened to be walking around reef on? No return. They destroyed that two issues. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah. The reef of no return pops up after it's return. been destroyed. Yeah, it did return. Yeah, it's, in a row. <laughs> it's the reef of constant return. This thing refuses to be destroyed. And this time it's bringing dinosaurs with it to defend itself. You know, and of course, no flying dinosaur was ever as big as the one shown here. Um, I, it, Again, I'm, I'm, I'm dumping on a lot of this story, but we'll get to commendations and I have a bunch as well, but I'll let you lead off the commendations on this one. Yeah, the, um, like I said, the, the great thing about having the originals, as, as we've said before, is that you can see what got lifted from the reprint to make fruit out of the, out of the original. And the, the original title page for the dinosaur that ate torpedoes, again, just, it just craps all over, you know, this, this, this time warp. Um, cover because the, the 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 cover in the reprint is it's the gypsy's head with the this title time warp and time moves onwards journeying ever onto new horizons but sometimes it crosses its own path resulting in a time warp and it's like okay fine whatever the original get a load of this the war has seen many kinds of battle chow from sea rations to powdered eggs with a grunting chorus of gi protests 
but here's a brand new one for the book. What do you do about the dinosaur who ate torpedoes? Guaranteed to set your teeth on edge from an explosive string of surprises. That is so much better. <laughs> like, like it is a crime that they they altered that text so much. Like, I was talking about on the cover how maybe they're trying to gesture towards some Stan Lee-style bombast, but boom, there it is right there. Like, if that's what you want, you already published it in 1965. Just reprint it right here. That's incredible. I am so glad you have the originals of, of, of many of these stories. And actually, um, looking at the very, very last panel, in this in the in the story here it's the you know make war no more you know ending as it as it usually is but in the, but again the original wraps it up so much cooler in the original as the frogman is climbing up into the surviving pt boat the bottom of the panel says the most sensational battles in the world are fought in the war that time forgot watch for the latest blockbuster thrillers in the next issue of star spangled war found only in dc's red hot lineup of war comics i'm like I like that better too. Yeah. <laughs> Holy Marvel age of comics, man. Like that is, you expect that from like a Stan and Jack book from, from across the way at, at their, you know, at their competition. That is, that is excellent comic book captioning right there. I and love right it. underneath it is an ad for uh, Captain Storm, PT boat skipper, you know, cause Captain Storm from the losers. He had his own book for about, 23 issues i think so so bam right underneath it oh by the way here's another war book down here might want to read this one too <laughs> was captain storm the guy with the wooden leg i'm yep. thinking of somebody else yeah well, eventually eventually okay originally, originally he had two real legs at some point he lost one and yeah. he, he he became one of the losers yeah that, uh, that uh, i was um our fighting forces I was on a podcast a bit ago where we had to make a whole line of comics out of one issue of Who's Who, and I happened to guest on the episode where it was like all the captains, and Captain Storm was in there. So I'm like, yeah, I think I actually remember this guy because I had to come up with a solo series for him. So that's that's yeah. you know, the reason that's stuck in my mind. Now, as far as commendations for this story, for me, you got Gene Colan, an artist I grew up really being a huge fan of. And I was, I've never seen this story before reading this issue, obviously. And I don't think I've seen Gene Colan art that's quite this early, unless I've seen reprints of his Daredevil stuff, if that was pre-1965. But I'll say that this didn't look a lot like the Gene Colan art I grew up to love for most of the story. It looked pretty rough, and I just attributed that to being to, to it being early. But first panel on the last page, you can see that style that I remember growing up loving, emerging in the figure of the diver in the foreground with kind of the wispy water in front of his hands. And just right there, I'm like, there it is. There's Gene Colan. And just to be able to see some of that emerging in real time on the page was, was really cool for me. And you can see little glimpses of, of Gene's very identifiable style throughout the story. So I got a kick out of that. And I did get a kick out of how crazy and just completely made up the dinosaur stuff was. As much as I dumped on it, it, it was just cool to see this like, you know, brontosaurus looking thing with giant saw-like dagger teeth, you know, <laughs> ripping torpedoes apart and eating ships. And it, it, was, it was just pure insanity. And, you know, for me, this is more of what I've expected when I saw Bob 
Bob Haney's credit in an issue before and didn't get it. And instead I get it from Bob Conagher, who I've always associated as being as a much more grounded and realistic writer. So it really surprised me on many levels. So, you know, as much as I bitched about it, I liked it. Odds are pretty good. As as we work our way through Weird War Tales, there'll be issues that'll be have more reprints in them and stuff like that. We're probably going to find more of these more of the time forgot stories, you know, with the, with the dinosaurs and stuff like that. That's I think so. I, I think they, them as, as as they come. So. I think so because I remember the War that Time Forgot stories, but obviously I didn't grow up reading them in their original books. So DC was reprinting these things in something I was reading in the seventies and eighties. So we got that, and we're gonna like leave that story behind in its uh in its time warp <laughs> munching on torpedoes and move on to the <laughs> next one which is called the unknown sentinel and i'm handing that over to you okay this is actually um this one's actually a little bit different this is was uh, reprinted from house of mystery 55 from october of 1956 art by uh, mort meskin and uh, yeah, I don't have any House of Mysteries hidden away in my archives, so I couldn't do any uh, reprint comparisons. Yeah, in fairness, that should be my job. I am a huge House of Mystery fan, but I've yet to start a serious attempt to collect every issue. Um, so I should be on that. I, I love House of Mystery and House of Secrets, but that is not a failure of yours. That is that is a, a foible of mine that we don't have that. So I'll take it. So um, the synopsis is two GIs, Eddie and Joe, of course, uh, are freezing during winter maneuvers stateside. They pretty much say, screw this and decide to desert. And pretty much as soon as they decide to desert, an avalanche sweeps them into an icy river. They pull themselves ashore, resigned to freezing to death. But what's that? A fire? Where did it come from? Who cares? They warm themselves and fall asleep, waking to discover their hands and feet have been bandaged. Who did it? Who cares? There's footsteps in the snow. Follow them. Time passes and they're about to give up and they find a kettle of hot soup. How to get here? Who cares? Eat. Following the footsteps leads them back to their camp and they see the ghostly form of a continental soldier. For the camp is at Valley Forge and today is Washington's birthday. No, seriously, I, I'm, I'm kind of jealous you got this one because this was one of my favorite stories in the book. Just um, again, I, I see on the script here, you don't have a Killjoy was here for this one. So I'm, gonna, doubt at me, so. I'm biting, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit anyway to, to give commendations to this one because I really enjoyed the heck out of it. And mostly because, I mean, first of all, I love how corny the story is. And all I did was sympathize with these two because I would have been just like them. First of all, saying screw this and deciding to get the hell out of there because the winter sucks. I'm, I'm all for that, especially because when we're recording this today, we just had a huge snowstorm today. And we got like between you where you live and I live around two and a half feet of snow if you split the difference. So this is a good day to talk about this story. So first of all, I sympathize. Yeah, I sympathize with the characters. I freaking loved the art. I'm not super familiar with Mort Meskin. I know his name. I'm not either. I know his name and that's all I can tell you, but right away the opening splash panel is downright gorgeous with that scene of the the frozen winterland or the frozen wilderness. And then the second panel has these two guys, they're like buried up to their noses in snow. Yeah, they're they're in a foxhole. Yeah. But all you can see is like the bridge of their noses and up. And it reminded me of the kids on the wall and peanuts almost. Like the <laughs> shift in style just sh- this guy shows an incredible range of styles throughout just these few pages. Uh, His facial expressions all through the story are amazing. I'm 
definitely convinced that I need to do a much deeper dive on Mort Meskin after reading this. So, so he made a fan out of me um, with this story. And, you know, this isn't a strong candidate for my favorite pages in the book. So that's me. Yeah, he, um, you know, my, my commendation is, you know, the second morning, you know, after they woke up, you know, in front of the fire and they, they trudged through the snow and they found the kettle of soup. You know, Meskin thought far enough ahead to draw a five o'clock shadow on both of these guys. So I'm like, good attention to detail. Thumbs up. Good job. Well done. You know? <laughs> and it looks like a five o'clock shadow. It's not like they've been in the field for like a month or something. So it's, it's I think it, it yeah, I think it's pretty convincing. I think you did a pretty good job of that. I mean, attention to detail, a, a, you know, flexible style, a, ability to draw nature scenes, facial expressions. This Mort had a heck of a toolkit for drawing comic books. So I, I'm down. And and I'm, I, I don't want to gloss over who wrote it either. Like, do we, we don't even know who wrote oh, it. Oh, I, 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 I dug through the book. I went yeah. through a guide that I could find, you know, trying to find an, a writer, hell, maybe maybe Meskin wrote it too. I don't know. Yeah. The only thing I could find was artist and editor. I, 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 I could not find a writer. I, I will bet you that, that you're right that Mark wrote and drew this because the script is so tied to the art. Like it's, it seems to be written by someone who understands that the artist is going to convey a lot of info. You don't have a lot of heavy narrate or narrative captions in this, like explaining how the soldiers are feeling and, you know, all that. It, it's not. A lot of these stories, as much as I like them, are pretty purple with the caption prose and over-describing things. And I, I love that, but it's not always necessary. So, you know, this feels like it was written by someone who, who knew what they were going to be drawing and knew that they could convey that information. So, yeah, it's probably Mort, you know? Uh, I, like I said, the, this is one of these people who's on my list now of a new creator for me that I've got to become a lot more familiar with. So that, that, um, that, that, you know, takes us, you know, from the, uh, <laughs> through the unknown Sentinel. And again, I want you to talk about the next segment, um, a little bit, uh, because, you know, you're someone who might've actually, uh, you might've actually read some, some army post office letters. So, uh, here you go. <laughs> well, I, it, it, next up, it, it's called APO weird war tales. It's the first letter page uh, that we see in uh, in the title. And uh, the header is this helmeted, you know, skeleton, you know, holding uh, an APO Weird War Tale bullet riddled envelope up to the, up close to the reader so the reader could see it. And there is what, probably about half a dozen letters. And all the letters are addressed to, to Joe Kubert, which I guess puts paid to our suspicion that this was Joe's pet project in the, in the early going. But uh, there's, 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 a couple of, there's a couple of chuckles in here. You know, there's, a, there's this one guy that's talking, you know, all about, you know, I'm a recently de- discharged veteran. Can you tell me where I can get an army surplus catalog that has Jeeps, field jackets, blah, 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 blah. And Joe responds, dear Joel, no, but I can tell you where to buy some comic books. <laughs> <laughs> that freaking killed me. I, I, that's on my list, right? That, that's the first thing on my list too. I'm just like, that is the best response. Like, no, but I can tell you where to buy some comics. Like, yeah, hey, you, you know. You definitely had some fun with this. There was another one. This guy is talking about uh, Weird War Tales, number one. And um, he talked about, oh, 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 the Fort Witch did not return. The Sea Wolf, Baker's Dozen, blah, blah, blah. And he ends with, and I don't like your logo. And Cuba responds with, try the logo. You'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> 
just fantastic. Again, <laughs> that guy couldn't be more wrong. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but that is the wrong opinion. Weird War Tales has one of, and I'll say it again, the best damn logos that's ever been on the cover of a comic. And it's true because I said so. Yeah. I did try the logo and I liked it. <laughs> my, one of my other favorites is there's a guy who just writes in uh, to tell them pretty much nothing but how they should change their comic book to make it better by listening to him. It's just a litany of here's how you can fix your comic. Just listen to me, a guy who's never guy. written a comic in his life. Why don't you get this guy? Why don't you get that guy? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Yeah, it's like fandom has never changed. It's just faster now where they can hurl their stupid, lazy opinions out on the internet instantaneously. This guy at least had to stick something in an envelope and put a stamp on it, so I'll give him that. (laughs) So again, I'm very, very glad to see the first appearance of a letters page. I love letters pages. As you know, I've been skipping. Reading. I've I've been skipping the the (laughs) prose story. Stories, the text stories or whatever, every issue, but I am going to read every single letters page. It's, it's a thing of mine. It's one of my favorite parts of any comic that I pick up when these things still existed. So I'm psyched that they've started to appear here. Well, I, I'm the same way as you. It's just like I, when I was reading these books for the first time, I wasn't reading the text stories. I don't read the letters pages. I don't do that to comic books I pick up off the shelf now. But for, because of this project, and stuff like that. Yes, I will read all the text stories. I will read all the letters pages because you never know. There might be something that's funny as all hell. You know, no, but I know where you can buy some comics. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, welcome to the mail room, man, because I have been a letters page freak since I first started reading comics. Um, so you're going to have a blast. The, some of the best content you're going to get out of some of the old books will be in the letters page like there's been issues where i'm like i didn't like any of that but the letters page was fantastic you know so i, I mean given that i had so much fun with this and you know i wanted you to intro it i still have to hand you the next story because it, there's no way anyone else can talk about this one so just go ahead man okay uh, next up um this is an original it's a prelude uss stevens this is all original sam glansman written Drawn, inked, what have you. Lived. Bingo. And the synopsis is, it's a boring day in the life aboard a destroyer until suddenly it's not. And yeah, it's just, you know, these guys just doing what they're doing, you know, BSing, playing cards, you know, at their duty stations. And all of a sudden, this Japanese plane comes screaming out of the clouds and the anti-aircraft guns open up and... Best panel is the plane gets hit and it just barely misses the destroyer. I mean, the, the, the wreckage goes right between the ship's two stacks. And you look at this panel and it literally looks like a, like a hot knife through butter. It, it is such an, an amazingly intense panel with the flames coming out of the planes. It smashes into the water and it just barely, barely misses the ship. And it, which isn't to say that... There's probably shrapnel damage from because the plane hit the water so close, stuff probably blew back on board and caused some damage. But it's it's a beautiful, beautifully intense story. Yeah, because I, I know we we've said this before. I know we we Jones about Cubert, we Jones about Heath. I'm always going to Jones about Sam Glansman. And the man, he he was a water tender, second class. Uh, He worked on the boilers and on the fires in the engine room. His autobiographical work. Is, of the USS Stevens is by far some of his best. I met him at, a, at, a, at the New York Comic Con you know, several years ago. And his first 
collection of USS Stevens stories was called All the Tin Cans. Uh, the, on the title page, it was called All the Tin Can Soldiers. And that pissed him off like you wouldn't believe because you're not a soldier, you're a sailor. Someone screwed it up and it fried his bacon. And he asked me permission, do you mind if I fix this? I'm like, do what you want. And he goes, yeah. And he scribbled, he scribbled out soldiers and wrote sailors underneath it and autographed it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I could, I'll have, I know I'll have plenty of other opportunities to talk about Sam and just the way, some of the ways we talk to each other and everything at, at you know, after this, uh, after the panel at this con that he was at, yeah, he 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 was a pistol, and you know, like I said, his USS Stevens stuff is his is his best stuff going. It just is. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, know. obviously, I've I've heard about the Stevens work. I've seen some of it from you. I've seen some of it online. I've never sat down and read it all, and this is really my first exposure to just reading an entire selection out of those stories. And and I gotta like. I've always, especially ever since I met you, but I've, I always, when I did see Glansman art and some books growing up, always loved it. But now I completely venerate the guy as he deserves to be, you know, appreciated. But this thing is 100% incredible. Just again, I talk a lot about the craft, page design. This is an incredibly swaggeringly confident piece of work. There's tons of white space on these pages. There's, you know, panels are floating in, in generous white space, like, and it's only a few pages and you're like, what are you doing wasting all that real estate? But then you look at the page, you, you read the story, you feel the pacing he's going for, because this story is almost all about waiting. It's just about how soldiers sit around on a ship waiting for something to happen. And all of a sudden one page, it's like, ha! yeah, the endless waiting for death it's actually written into the story. That's, that's, the, that's the terminology he uses. And you wait, you know, and then this moment passes and it's incredibly intense as you described. And then it passes and you go right back to waiting for death to come back. And it sounds trite, but the way he conveys it by using his knowledge of the mechanics of a comic book page, how it can, you know, like communicate a sense of time and pacing, you fall into a rhythm with these soldiers reading this story of like going through the tick-tock swing of their day mostly waiting around and then it all changes when the action happens, when the attack comes. And the art, the panels themselves, they become much more chaotic and frenzied and you're caught right up with it. It's just, it's, an, it's amazingly perfect in its use of the page. And, uh, you know, of course, the quality of the drawings is great. But again, I feel like one thing that maybe doesn't get talked about enough with someone like this is their knowledge of the medium and their ability to use it mechanically to, to catch you up in the story. And man, I am, I am 100% like signed on. Like I said that, uh, you know, what was it? The unknown Sentinel is a strong candidate for my favorite tale. Um, you know, if you, if you discount the USS Stevens, because it's not even fair. <laughs> I mean, this is just on a different level entirely. It almost feels like the story is slumming it being in any other comic book. Even though this is a good book, you know, that the USS Stevens is like coming in here doing this issue a favor. So, uh, you know, uh, again, like I've always been a Glansman fan, nowhere near on your level, never met the guy. But um, reading just these few pages and wasn't he involved in the pool last time around? Uh, that was Heath. 
That was Heath, though. Okay, so but Ransom so, did have he had that thing about the, the aerial machine guns. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. He had the battle album. Yes, the battle album. So we're on a high of like some of my favorite things I've ever seen in a comic book right now. You know, we even have that panel that Novik drew of the wingless plane. We have Mort Meskin stuff. We have this story. I'm a happy guy reading, <laughs> reading Weird War Tales right now. So being as happy as I am, uh, you know, all good things must come to an end. And we're going to end it with the uh, finale of the framing sequence by Joe Kubert, and we call this one, I Know Them to Be True. Getting back into our framing sequence, the synopsis is Tony, our uh, soldier that the gypsy woman is ministrating to, he doubts her tales, says, I don't believe any of this. Even though most of these tales, okay, so the, the dinosaur one's pretty unbelievable. Maybe the time warp. I guess, I guess I'm, I guess I'm on his side, you know, doubting her tales, but she knows them to be true. And uh, Tony, of course, has fallen in love with her because he probably hasn't been listening to a word she's saying. He, he's just been checking her out this whole time. So, you know, my opinion of Tony just keeps on sliding <laughs> down, you know. Uh, towards where I feel like he deserves what's coming. Uh, so he's in love and he begs her to stay, but she must return to another time and another battle. She will wait for him and they will meet again soon. And the band of this woman's compatriots, I'm going to keep from using the, the word there, uh, they vanish into the fog and Johnny returns with the medics to check, you know, check in on Tony. And in this last awesome panel, Tony has aged into an old man as he did on the cover. So in this time when he wished it was 20 years from now, I think he aged a lot more than 20 years during his time listening to this woman's stories and his hitting on her and doubting her stories. It's like, yeah, okay, buddy. Uh, we're going to vanish into the mists of time here and you are going to... I'm going to take about 60 years of your life with me. Right. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to use some of your life force to enter the mists of time. You know, like maybe they use that to, to fuel their journey, but I'm going full comic book nerd on that. So, you know, with, with that, we, we wrap into the cover without having to officially make this a behind the cover story, which have never been that good except for Joe's art. So I, again, I like that choice here to make the framing sequence into the behind the cover story, which I guess we even kind of got last time. So that, yeah, I'm a fan of that. So there we have our, um, our final framing sequence. And I don't see a Killjoy was here note from you. Mm -hmm. Nothing so we'll, uh, we'll jump to commendations. I'll let you talk for a second. Well, like I said, the, the last awesome panel, it's about, it's about half of the last page and it's Tony, the old man. And it, it's it's just like the cover. It's the bags under the eyes. It's the wrinkles. It's hair, his hair is all white. His eyebrows are white. I mean, dude has changed. Has aged sixty years in a night. I mean, this is obviously you know not the same dude that Johnny left behind to go get the medics. You know, it's just like you know what the hell did you get hit with? <laughs> the Germans have some sort of aging weapon or something. Yeah, That's just the weariness on that face in the end. Like you, you give Joe Kubert a close up. Tired. Yeah, just of anyone's face, and you're going to have one of the best drawings in, in whatever book it is. Like, just just the, the weariness, the, again, just, it's incredible. And it's really just a close-up of some dude's face, you know? There's not a lot of background scenery going on, but it's an 
it's a really cool panel to look at. So I'm with you on that. My favorite panel in this story is actually the second panel. It's a simple one. You know, it's right after this woman says, I know them to be true. And Tony says, come now, those were just farm tales, which that's a, eh, that's a turn of phrase I'm not familiar with. It's probably just, you know, fallen out of use. I feel like it was probably even old fashioned for the time, but the panel itself has two of her compatriots sitting around a kettle that they're cooking something in. She's standing. Tony is off panel, you know, dismissing her stories. And just that drawing, again, Hubert brings a sense of of a real scenario of real living people in a panel where he didn't have to do that. You know, you got this this guy stirring the pot and a silhouette of another of his friends sitting, you know, sitting there cross-legged waiting for whatever it is to come to boil so you can eat. And you know, he's all in silhouette. It's just an, like, it's an incredibly good panel with a good use of lighting and shows that while this whole thing's going on, this drama between the woman and Tony, the rest of the camp is just getting on with its business. And I love details like that. Like it just makes it into an entire scene rather than just a bunch of talking heads. And that's, that's the Cubert difference. That's, that's a real comic book craftsman's difference and that's what stood out to me so that's the end of the framing sequence it's not technically the end of the issue and i'm gonna make you describe what comes after it well we we go back to uh four more one panel john costanza yucks in military madness yep and it's you know it's the same wannabe military horror monster something or other stuff going on um i like one of them there's one you know there, there's two mps you know they're on duty one staring at the moon with little heart-shaped images coming off of his head as he stares at the moon the mp behind him is like you know he's turning into a werewolf <laughs> yeah he's that he's that guy who's been bitten in the zombie movie but pulls down his sleeve you know but this is a werewolf bite you know it's like i kind i, I kind of like that one too i guess you're that guy yeah, so yeah. That, that was that that was my favorite of of the four. I'll say the the one after that in the bottom right gave me a little bit of a Gru the Wanderer vibe, which gave it a lot of bonus points for me. You've got you know two soldiers in the background digging ditches or something. They're digging holes. Maybe you know why they'd be doing this. I don't, but you know, foxhole or something. Like yeah, that. I guess they're, they're on maneuvers. They're doing whatever the hell it is they're told to do. And the guy in the foreground has a pickaxe and is about to swing at his patch of dirt, except his patch of dirt is actually the mound of a big globular green monster that is starting to look up at him and wake up. And it reminds me of like these grew the wanderer by the amazing Sergio Aragonis, um, you know, images where he'd have grew about to attack what looks like a snake in the grass, but you can see that it's the tail of an immense dragon behind him in the weeds. So it doesn't really deserve the bonus points, but since it made me think of Gru, I grabbed onto it to save me from the military madness. Yeah. Again, I, I like the guy in the middle. I like the little Sergeant Stone mascot. I wish he was more a part of these because there's some actual fun character design there and he just doesn't appear in the actual jokes. Yeah, maybe in a future episode, he'll be, it'll be like a four panel story and he'll be like the drill sergeant yelling at him or something. I don't know. Yeah, I hope so because <laughs> Costanza's a good artist. He's a good, you know, but I just think someone else needs to write the gags and I think Sergeant stone needs to be a character but you know okay so we, we we finished off military madness and we can get to the part where we talk about our favorite advertisements in this issue and um i'm, I'm gonna let you lead again 
well, it can be hard sometimes. You, you, you flip through these things and you just try to find the ad that either hurts the most or makes you laugh the loudest. And the one that I settled with was about halfway through the uh, the ghost ship stories. And it's uh, it's a blonde guy and he's got, you know, sideburns, a mustache and a little goatee action going on. And just the caption for this thing just kills me. It's like, look impressive anytime. Enjoy an exciting, romantic, quick change to suit your mood time. Send for mustache, sideburns, and Van Dyke at once. Simply check the color you want or send a sample of your hair and leave the, <laughs> leave the matching to RX. <laughs> they are definitely building voodoo dolls on people. People are sending in hair and they are using them for supernatural or sinister purposes. That's my- All three, $6. And here securely, off and on in seconds, can be worn as- is or trimmed to just the style you want. <laughs> Masculiner de- uh, Company, Department 741, East Orange, New Jersey. <laughs> just the name of the company and everything. I must have seen this ad a thousand times, but for some reason I completely missed it in this issue until I saw that you had written it in the notes for this episode. And then I went paging back through the issue and went, oh my God, there it is. Like, <laughs> and Dyke. <laughs> just... Stick on beards, stick on facial hair. Stick on sideburns. I mean, good. (laughs) You can order through the mail. Send us a sample of your hair. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, they're building, they're like cloning you. They're making a voodoo doll. Something is up with that. I'm sure like Jordan Peele could make a horror movie about what's behind them wanting a sample of your hair, really. Uh, but again, just uh, just an awesome find for, for you to pull that out because I had missed it. And I know I've seen that ad when I was growing up. And just the mystery behind these things. Like, I'd love to have known somebody who ordered this stuff. I mean, uh, we should go looking online to see if anyone's ever documented that they ordered this crap. And what could it have possibly looked like? You're going to pay for your chin. <laughs> Hell yeah. This is phase two pays, man. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a market and they're trying to fill that need. So oh, the seventies. Yeah. The very early seventies, man. Like, so I had to, I had to pick this one ad yeah. um, because it's an absolute classic. I'm really glad you found masculiner because I, I love having the more obscure, crazier ad, but in this issue, and well, it's probably in a ton more issues. So we'll mention it the one time is the infamous, the famous, the incredibly well-known Charles Atlas ad. Now this is the version of his ad that's titled the insult that made a man out of Mac. This is the hero of the beach. This is where Grant Morrison stole flex mentalo from, for my more modern doom patrol fans. This is the, the guy that's on, you know, he's at the beach with his girlfriend and a bully kicks sand in his face. And she's like, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, like, like obviously not impressed with him. And he goes home and has a fit and he orders Charles Atlas book and he comes back to the beach all buff and just, punches that guy right in the face because you know that's 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 good wholesome activity that's how you do self-improvement if you're if you're a charles atlas man is you punch a guy right in the face on first sight so you know you have that lovely moralistic tale and so this is the appearance of of this incredibly just you know this ad was in so many comic books it was like standard issue you can hardly avoid the thing. Um, one of my favorite parts of the ad is is the 
you know, the tagline where they're trying to appeal to the potential customer and they say, sick and tired of being soft, frail, skinny, or flabby, only half alive. Like, yeah, all right, hey, take it easy, man. All right. These people feel bad enough about themselves as it is. You know, that 10 cents for a 32 page, how dynamic tension makes you a new man booklet. So I'm thinking 10 cents, what were they really selling? So I dug into it a little bit. And of course, it's one of those, the first hit is free or extremely cheap. And then he's upselling you for a whole series of other books that likely cost a lot more than that. And he made a ton of money off this program. So good on him. You know, he knew what he was doing. You know, it's like there's 12 lessons after that, as I found out, and then one final perpetual lesson. You know, so I just, there's like 11 or 12 more books after that first one you send away for. So he, he had, he had a good, he had a good racket going here and just a classic ad in a comic that's in comic book form. That story of Mac uh, being uh, bullied on the beach is done as comic book panels. And this, this ad had many different titles before the one we see here, which is the one I grew up with, the insult that made a man out of Mac. It had, you know, I forget what they were, but this ad was around a lot longer than I thought it was when I looked into it. So that gets the ad pick for me. But honestly, the Masculiner Company ad is the best ad in this book. <laughs> I mean, I'm so glad you stumbled across that and picked it out because that's the one that I come away wanting to do even more research on. Well, I, I need to go make a quick throw my own two bits on the, in the Charles Atlas uh, ad. Is they got the, like, the live photo of him. He's wearing like a leopard skin brief or something like that. It says, Charles Atlas awarded the title of the world's most perfectly developed man. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> and again, lousy ad placement. You know, they have the, you know, cut out the coupon and set it in while the coupon is on the backside of the front of the, of, of the cover. So I don't, I'm sorry, I don't want to cut up my cover. And they look at the very, very bottom of the, of the, of the coupon that they want you to cut out. It says, in England, Charles Atlas, 21 Poland Street, London, W1. I'm like, oh, so there's a English Charles Atlas location. Okay, cheerio, pip pip. <laughs> Good for you. Hey, he's the world's most perfectly developed man. He's worldwide, man. He's, he, is, he is all over the place. He is international. The sun never sets on Charles Atlas. No, exactly. <laughs> he's everywhere. He is all things. He really is flex mentalo and and again if you don't know who that is people uh go read some doom patrol comics go watch the doom patrol series on hbo max and i'm getting no money for mentioning that but uh basically grant morrison ripped this off and turned him into a character in the doom patrol and got dc comics into a bit of trouble for a while because he didn't run it by anybody <laughs> and uh they eventually reached uh, reached an understanding with Atlas, Atlas's company or estate or whatever, and DC is allowed to use the character again. But uh, Morrison did a lot of that, just taking stuff without asking. It's one of the things I like about him. So uh, it, again, it's an ad that reminds me of other things I love today, just like that one panel in Military Madness reminded me of Gru, which is my favorite comic book of all time. And that's a good note to end this episode on. I'm telling you, I had... I had a bumpy ride with that first story and um, really wasn't sure how much I was going to enjoy the rest of the issue, but come to the end of it. This again was one of my favorite comics I've, I've, I've read ever. I mean, it, you have the unknown Sentinel, which had me discover Mort Meskin. You have the USS Stevens, 
the first letters page. This this is just we're on an upward journey here, so I'm I'm very happy with it. What do you think, man? Like how this compares to the first three issues? Well, we're we're, we're I think we're starting to settle into a groove and everything else. I mean, like I said, huge, huge Landsman fan. Met the man, been to his grave, everything else. Um, I've got the um, collection, the c- complete collected works of the USS Stevens, you know, hardbound and everything else like that. And so if you ever want to borrow it, you know, be my guest. It, it, it's a hell of a read. It's, it's all the, the two-page, six-page, whatever stories that were scattered in all the DC War books. I think I'm just going to order myself a copy at this you point. Know. Because I am, I am such like, I am such a deep convert at this point that I, I need my own copy of that. So that's going to happen. So um, yeah, I think you're, we're we're on a we're on a. I think we're definitely on an upward swing here. I think we're only have about what another two two episodes. I think of mostly reprinted books. Yeah, I think the and reprints go through issue seven. I'm not sure what density they are maybe by issue seven there's almost no reprints in it but i remember in the write-up when i was looking into the history of this book that the first seven issues had a lot of reprinted material but you know we'll we'll find out we're, we're only three away from that two uh, isn't it two? no we're in fourth issue this is the fourth spine tingling issue because <laughs> we started with episode zero yeah, so we're gonna get to the fifth chin. We'll get to the fifth chin tickling issue next, or whatever it's gonna be. You know, the the, the fifth wet willying issue of Weird War Tales. Um, and uh, on that note, I'll say we'll see you next time. And until then, make war no more.